welcome to an episode of the Arcanand podcast once more. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera, and this is the podcast all about the study of not just people, but also the animals that are the most closely related to us, the primates. On the show previously, we have had people talking about primate behavior, conservation challenges, ecology, biology, and working in these areas is another expert when it comes to non-human primates who is here with us today, Dr. Amy Callan. Amy, are you there? Yes. Hi, Michael. Hi, Amy. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. And it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, where are you normally based and you know, what kind of areas of biological anthropology do you concentrate on? Well, I'm currently based at the Department of Primatology in Leipzig in Germany at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently specializing on great ape um, non-human primate research, including behavior, ecology, and conservation. Okay, yeah. And so with, uh, with the great apes, that'll be like orangutans, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas? Yes. So I particularly focus on great apes, chimpanzees, and, bono- and bonobos at the moment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much orangutans, but I hope to do that in the future. Right. I'm so curious, like, because uh, I don't do primatology myself, uh, how did you first get started studying primates and, you know, did, did you first study them yeah, during your undergraduate degree? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I actually come from Vancouver in Canada, and I did my undergrad in zoology. I think like most of us that are interested in animals, we want to specialize at a very early age um, into zoology. And even at that time, I still had a keen interest in primates. I don't know if you remember or if you're the same age as me, but um, I had watched this David, David Attenborough um, episode where he's up in the mountain with the mountain gorillas and the Burungas. And I think, Uh, Mm -hmm. did you watch that? Yeah. It was a pretty magical moment, I think, for many of us. (laughs) (laughs) And um, since then, I had that um, picture in my mind that, oh, I really want to go into the jungle and see great apes um, in person for myself. Um, So Mm -hmm. after my undergraduate degree, I had my first experience uh, studying non-human primates in the wild. Uh, I went to Costa Rica. I applied for working as um, a, biolo- like a biology assistant, a field assistant for a biologist there. And cool. yeah, and that was really cool. So I got to see my first capuchin monkeys, spider monkeys, howlers, and many other beautiful animals um, in this gorgeous yet unprotected um, area, lowland tropical forest right along the beach. It really Mm -hmm. was paradise. (laughs) Yeah. Did you receive much training before, you know, you went on such a trip to be an assistant? Good question. No, I didn't. I had at the time, (laughs) at the time I really was just, you know, um, going into a situation that I had absolutely no idea about. But my um, previous training was actually more on temperate um, field biology because I had grown up in Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, At that time, I had really just done um, kind of um, internships at um, environmental assessment companies. I had also worked with captive animals. So I had some experience working with like captive lemurs um, at a um, facility that was um, doing some endangered um, species breeding and education. Um, center. It was a private facility. And uh, yeah, so going out to Costa Rica was really um, basically stepping into a big adventure that I had 
very little knowledge about. Like, uh, and learning on the job as well. Yeah, I had a really, the biologist who was in charge of the project was really, um, was really amazing. And um, he spent, it was me and another assistant at the time. So that was also good to be starting off with someone else who was just as kind of new in that environment with you. And Mm -hmm. um, he was really great in that the first couple of weeks was just spent really training us, getting us familiar with transects in the area, understanding what our actual job was and how to collect the, the mm-hmm. data. And um, where where else has your work in primatology taken you in terms of travel? Oh yeah, um, all over, well, all over Africa now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after I left um, BC, I basically um, I applied for a master's program in England and it was the Oxford Brooks um, master's program in primate conservation. And I had heard about this program from a previous professor of mine, and it seemed just perfect for me. So I was really excited when I got the opportunity to do that program. And when I went there, that was, um, it's based in Oxford, UK. And when I went there, um, my main goal was basically to find a way to (laughs) to study great apes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so that's what I did um, <laughs> for the dissertation portion of the master's where you really conduct your own research project. Uh, there I got in contact with the Wildlife Conservation Society that were based in uh, Republic of Congo at the time. Mm-hmm. And they spoke about, um, at, at the time there was a, a lot of excitement around this, these areas of um, swamp forest in Northern Republic of Congo that house that apparently um, many had the highest uh, density of gorillas mm-hmm. that um, was ever recorded in Africa. And so these would be Western lowland gorillas, different from the ones that David Attenborough mm-hmm. was, was with, but um, also incredibly interesting and very little is, was known about the Western lowland gorillas at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was particularly excited um, about the potential to go out to uh, Republic of Congo and study these gorillas. Mm-hmm. Is there like any like connective tissue be- between um, even the research that you were doing at that early stage and the kind of research that you're looking at now? Yeah. Um, well, I have to say, though, that research from the beginning, I started off very interested in gorillas, but I ended up switching. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started my PhD. But at the same time, um, I've still been very interested in uh, behavioral ecology and communication as well. And my first experience with grade eight communication was actually at this um, reserve in Republic of Congo. It's called the Lactele Community Reserve, uh, run by the Wildlife Conservation Society. And um, that was the first time I saw um, a communicative gesture being used that um, really bewildered me at the time. So I I wrote up uh, a small publication on it after, and it was this hand clapping gesture. So the gorillas, they really clap, like um, female gorillas um, especially, they do that when they're um, feeling threatened or um, there's some kind of intruder. The intruder in this case was me. And they use this clapping um, signal basically to keep in touch with the other members of their group. Wow. And when it comes to the chimpanzees, do you usually work in a, in a large team when you're, when you're out there? Yeah. Um, most of the time, my experience so far has been not with quite a large team. So usually it's myself, uh, a highly trained assistant, 
um, and then usually another one or two people. And that's because you're often, I'm often camping in the jungle. You need to have um, multiple individuals with you um, just from a perspective of, you know, logistical um, duties, uh, preparing food, um, making sure there's a fire, um, also just wandering through the wilderness is actually quite difficult and sometimes you also need to make um, some way for yourself uh, by cutting um, a bit of vegetation in order to get through. Yeah. Um, but we often try to minimize the amount of vegetation mm-hmm. you have to cut to do, get. Uh, do chimpanzees also have, uh, I don't know, some kind of uh, signal that they, that they use when they feel threatened uh, when, when, you know, maybe humans are, are in the environment and they yeah. uh, are not welcome? Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, one thing is that for me, most of my experience has been what I did for my PhD was um, chimpanzees that were actually habituated to human presence. And so these chimpanzees are actually accustomed to being observed for long periods of time by human observers. Right. And so they no longer exhibit um, behaviors that you would expect if they were uh, scared of scared of us. Mm-hmm. But I have encountered in other places um, wild chimpanzees, and depending on the environment, um, so meaning and also the experience of the individuals. So in some areas, I can probably best illustrate this with an example. In some areas of um, in, in Africa, for example, um, you will find chimpanzees that live really closely uh, to human villages or whatnot. And because they see humans on a repeated basis, and they also aren't um, actively poached or threatened um, in these areas, they will be less afraid when they encounter me and my team. Um, in comparison to um, a forest where I might go and there is a really high poaching pressure or hunting pressure, mm. mm-hmm. which makes sense because um, in areas where there's greater hunting pressure are um, more threats in general to wildlife, then animals in general are more weary and vigilant. Mm-hmm. Is the like methods of communication among chimpanzees quite um, varied? Like, Are there many different ways that they communicate with one another? Yeah, um, chimpanzees are, I think, particularly very interesting from a communication perspective. So um, they use, in, in general, to keep in touch with their group. Unlike gorillas, chimpanzees have to um, actively keep in touch with um, other members of their group because their group is often spread out mm-hmm. and many members won't be together at the same time. So um, chimpanzees and bonobos have something we call like the vision fusion social system, meaning that uh, any group will be split up into kind of independent parties that are traveling throughout the territory. And then they use these pantoot and buttress drumming vocalization and acoustic signals that travel long distances, so one kilometer at least. Um, and they can use that to kind of keep in touch um, with other individuals that might be farther away. Mm-hmm. And different groups um, do perhaps use different signals, but we're still investigating um, to really to what extent is this happening. Mm-hmm. We see some subtle variation in um, the acoustic signals so that um, some groups will have signals like pantoots that are more similar, sound more similar than if you were to compare them with another group. Yeah. Um, but um, at this stage still, we're, we're really um, still investigating to what extent there might be other signals that differ between the groups. Mm-hmm. 
when was the last time you were out in the field? Oh, good question. <laughs> I don't get to go often enough these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I went last in um, 2017, so the first half of 2017. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, typically when you're out there, uh, what is involved with your, your work day to day? And when you witness or when you kind of, uh, you know, know that wild chimpanzees are communicating with one another, what kinds of things are you noting down? Are you recording them as well? Oh yeah, definitely. I'm running around. I'm usually with a very, um, big microphone and trying to get quality <laughs> recordings um, from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that your question, though, uh, it would differ for me depending on um, which where I am. So if I was studying, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in my career that I've been able to study habituated chimpanzees, so ones that are already um, for a long time been um, um, the subject of study of a long-term research project. Mm-hmm. And that was in the Thai forest in Cote d'Ivoire. And there the Thai chimpanzee project has been running now for 40 years. Mm. And so there the logistics and everything are really well organized. Um, And when you wake up in the morning, sometimes very early, around even 3.30 in the morning, you need to get up because you're basically need to be within, say, I don't know, two and a half, three hours. Um, yeah. As these are far away, you need to be at the nesting site where the individuals nested. So they make a, a night nest to sleep in. And we know the point in which they nested because, say, the previous day's team has taken um, a GPS location. And so we need to return back to that same site um, the morning team. So if I'm um, arriving, I'm leaving the camp in the morning mm-hmm. um, and you need to be there usually by 530 mm-hmm. because the chips will start to wake up around that time. Wow. And then your day lasts, you know, um, you're following them for about 14 hours straight. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so it's pretty exhausting, but it's also incredibly um, amazing because uh, we get to observe their, the chimpanzees day to day. You know behavior, and uh, we get to be a part of their their life basically, and they allow us to do mm-hmm. that. Why are they Why are they getting up so early? Do you think? Yeah, it's, um, so sometimes they get up really early. Um, if, for example, there is delicious fruit nearby, um, this is because so something like a fig tree that is um, producing um, fruits uh, like um, basically abundantly fruiting at one given moment in the year uh, will attract a lot of animals in the forest. So not just chimpanzees, but all the other monkey species Mm -hmm. and also a lot of bird species. And so if you're the early bird, um, so to speak, Mm -hmm. then you will get the most fruit. So um, a lot of animals uh, in Thai forest are sleeping during the day. And so being early is an advantage. You can get um, the, the fruit and eat the most perhaps in the morning. Yeah. What have been like your most favorite aspects of the work that you have done? And I've, I've asked some of my previous guests who are, who are primatologists as well this question, mm-hmm. but you know, why, why do you think it's so important to, to look at primates in biological anthropology? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one, for the, one thing for me is that, um, well, when it comes to reconstructing our own evolutionary past, we cannot observe the behavior of um, ancestral hominins or the fossil hominins that we have um, in the fossil record. Mm-hmm. And as amazing that those as those fossils are and the inference that we're able to make is 
pretty impressive um, as techniques also get better and better over time. We still can observe them and see what they're doing on their day-to-day -day basis. But we are lucky enough to have um, non-human grade apes like the chimpanzees, the gorillas, the bonobos, and the orangutans mm -hmm. um, that we can still observe. So, um, and essentially my like motivation to continue this work and why I think grade ape in particular um, behavioral ecology is so important is that these apes are threatened in the wild and losing the chance to be able to continue to um, study them and understand them. And if we, you know, basically that if we can um, take advantage of the fact that we still have these mm -hmm. creatures around that are also closely related to us, um, and that we can really gain um, a better understanding of our own evolutionary history if we can perhaps kind of understand what might have been the common drive traits or, or um, um, what would have been the common traits that we would have had in common with our last common ancestor with, with non-humans, which would have been something perhaps similar to yeah. um, a chimpanzee or a bonobo, um, but, you know, not the same, but similar. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. And how have you seen primatological research um, change or like evolve since you first began uh, entering this this field? Yeah, I've seen actually, um, I think I've seen it advance quite a bit. And what I've noticed and I, I'm quite happy about is that the methods have improved quite a bit. So when I first started, all anyone ever did um, was just observe and write, take a notepad and a pen and just write down everything you see. Yeah. And although that, that's incredibly important and can give you a lot of information, at the same time, um, it makes it difficult from a perspective of downstream analyses um, and also for sharing information with others in your field. And so nowadays, we use much more um, technical um, equipment to collect data. So, you know, for example, collecting recordings using audio and visual technology. Also, um, we do a lot more um, non-invasive sampling using methods like um, collecting poo samples and pee samples um, in order to get information about the physio physiological state or um, hormonal state of individuals. Mm -hmm. And even more recently, um, what I've been doing with my work is using recording units, um, so camera traps, or even um, audio recording units that one can place in a forest mm -hmm. that will record whenever, um, so with camera traps, it will record whenever um, any animal or movement is triggered on the camera trap, because oh. uh, they have these infrared sensors. And with um, audio recording units, they just record continuously, um, depending on whichever schedule you set them up at. Mm -hmm. But the benefit of these kinds of methods is um, that you don't have to be in the forest yourself to collect the data. You just have to maintain the devices and um, download the data at a given interval. And this is kind of a really nice benefit because it works well in areas where you don't have habituated chimpanzee groups or habituated animals, so where you don't know where the individuals are. Mm -hmm. And so you might need to sample a large area um, at a given time. Um, and, and it's also helpful because even if you do know where the animals are, sometimes they don't want to be observed. Mm -hmm. 
as I was mentioning, uh, if you're in an area where there's high poaching pressure, for example, they may not tolerate being observed. And by using these kind of non-invasive um, small devices in the forest, you might be able to actually get really high quality observations without um, disturbing the animals too much. Mm -hmm. And the process of using this technology and setting it up to begin with, uh, is that relatively uh, painless? Or is there still trouble while you're doing that? Oh, yeah. No, it's not painless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wish it was painless. Um, I, I had a, yeah, technology is great, but I think anyone that has, you know, struggled with setting up their smartphone or whatnot, um, the, the devices that we're using in the forest as well, incredibly difficult sometimes to, to get them to work the way you want to. Another issue we have um, when we're working in these tropical settings is the fact that these areas are incredibly humid, working with 99%, 100% humidity. Mm -hmm. um, if it rains, you know, it's a it's like a downpour. Um, and also there is an incredible amount of insects. Uh, I can't tell you the insects were one of my biggest problems when I was setting up audio recording units because they somehow find a way into whatever device you have put into the forest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, there's a lot more um, environmental and habitat issues that we come up that we mm -hmm. have to battle with when we're putting up these kind of technical devices. So um, I think it's even more difficult than say um, when you're sitting at sitting in your lab and preparing all the preparing all the devices for yeah. shipment. Or uh, and this is just an aside, but like, where where does the equipment come from? So, are, do you make it yourself? Do do primatologists make it themselves? Do they order it from somewhere? Um, sometimes I do know some individuals. So when we first started out, um, one, some of the work that I do is also regarding um, so with camera traps and audio, as I mentioned. And when I first started off um, interested in the and doing some kind of audio monitoring for primates, I met individuals that created their own devices. So these were like makeshift um, devices that were somehow a large microphone attached to a solar panel, mm -hmm. attached to some kind of like a small um, motherboard unit that was, you know, sometimes even had like a GPS or something yeah. um, associated with it. Yeah, so you definitely were getting um, a lot of creativity and engineering. But um, nowadays, more and more people are kind of, because companies um, have realized the the uh, demand for um, these kinds of technologies, especially with regards to wildlife monitoring around the world, not mm -hmm. just primatology, mm -hmm. um, there's more and more options and also low cost options. Mm -hmm. And so nowadays we usually use um, particular companies that you've had um, perhaps a good experience with or using that, that uh, particular unit has worked well in a, in a given habitat. And then we usually go back and, and purchase again the, the same units, mm -hmm. less engineering and more um, just buying actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do your, do, do your friends and family in Vancouver, do they kind of like understand what you do or the meaning behind your work? <laughs> I think that's a funny question. Um, yes, I think so. I have a really big family, but but uh, I think my parents are more or less just incredibly proud. Um, I am the, one of the first people in my family to have a doctorate, for yeah. example, in anything. So that's um, I think they're just incredibly proud, uh, and it is nice for them when I'm not so much my scientific papers. Like they, they like my scientific papers, but I don't think they really understand 
that aspect. But they do understand when I get an interview or um, like a radio show or something like that. When I share those kinds of things Mm -hmm. with them and they hear me talk about my work more in a colloquial setting, then I think they they appreciate it a bit more then because they really get to understand. Yeah, they're all on board with that. Um, Interesting. So, uh, and do you think like in public consciousness, uh, people are aware of of you know primate behavior, primate diversity, primate conservation mm-hmm. issues. And nowadays, I do think that is true. Um, one thing that I, is remarkable to me is that since I when I started and to, to nowadays, um, you know, just the number of people that actually know what a chimpanzee mm-hmm. and a bonobo are, and that they're not the same thing, that is remarkable to me. That I can um, meet uh, just a a random person on the street and the likelihood that they even know what I've heard of a bonobo is Mm -hmm. um, pretty impressive. And so I do think that primatology has somehow expanded in interest also in the like public consciousness. And this is likely due to just the fact that, you know, these animals, they are, they're so much like us. It's it's impossible not to feel a kind of a kinship. Um, And uh, I think it also helps that because of these new technologies, we're able to, capture and record um, behaviors or in like natural settings that we can then mm-hmm. share with the public and um, also use in our presentations or in our outreach. And that's really an effective way of capturing, um, I think, the public, the mm-hmm. public eye, essentially. And do you think that like uh, the, the, you know, human impacts on, on, on chimpanzees or, or gorillas or any other primate uh, are particularly um, you know, egregious at this moment, especially like for chimpanzees and bonobos? Yeah, I, do. I mean, at the moment, the issue is that it's kind of a double-edged sword. So although that um, there seems to be a greater um, appreciation and willingness to, to do something, take a, take the, take a, um, um, the necessary steps to protect biodiversity and also protect um, chimpanzees and, and great apes in the wild, at the same time, human impacts are also increasing and exacerbating mm-hmm. at an incredible rate. And this is just, you know, this is just the facts. Um, so although um, we have, I think, collectively really good intentions and the world and the public are generally well aware of all the issues, not just the human um human impacts like things like um, you know development, agriculture, also knowing um, how like larger consumerism is driving some of the destruction we observe in in tropical places. So things like I'm thinking about here, like palm oil industry, um, mm-hmm. uh, mining, for example. I think there's a greater awareness of all these things, and um, hopefully within the next I don't know 10, 20 years, um, though that awareness is going to translate into to real action and um, that the companies are going to have to start to listen and perhaps change the way mm-hmm. they're doing I mean, this. I think like when it comes to conservation and like climate, you know, it's a big conversation that's happening, especially like this year yeah. uh, in 2019, you know, uh, so these are the sorts of things that you think about, right? When, when you're reading the news. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all the time. Um, and, but it's, I think for many of us as a field primatologist, um, you see these things uh, firsthand and so you can't, um, it's not just something that, you know, I, I'll read, I'll read about. I, I see it with my own eyes when I'm in a place. So for, to give an example of this, um, 
when I went back in 2017, I, I wanted to visit uh, two sites, and one in Guinea and one in Guinea-Bissau, where we found um, a very cool behavior uh, recently in chimpanzees mm. called accumulative stone throwing. And when I visited one site in Guinea, um, it was heartbreaking because um, that whole area has essentially turned into um, a mining town. And the few villages where people still live um, in um, that don't haven't moved already to the mining um, town because the mining companies create these beautiful, um, you know, well-paved lights, um, houses already made um, so that they can relocate individuals from uh, their villages and to these um, mm -hmm. created like new towns that they have provided. And um, in that way, they can bulldoze the villages and the forest and um, create new mining pits. And what I observed there was essentially um, incredible amount of degradation, um, essentially like a moon. Imagine like a, a moon landscape mm -hmm. you're looking at and it's just red dirt or maybe more like Mars, how I imagine Mars might be red, yeah. red dirt um, landscape. Um, and of course, in those areas, there's very few chips left and, um, you know, the, the behaviors and, and mm -hmm. things that we observe there are also going to be gone because of that. So, um, yeah, this is like a real, it's real life um, issues and things that we see firsthand. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I am at, well, at least when I go away to do what I have to do. So when I go to conferences or, uh, I, I'm an archeologist, so I, I go to different museums and collections and stuff. And I, I measure bones, um, when I'm far away from home like that. And I, I, you know, sometimes encounter difficulty or, um, you know, sometimes the experience can be quite emotional. Mm -hmm. I was wondering like whether that, happens to you too and and you know how do you how do you go through that how do you kind of deal with that yeah i mean it's um yeah like you say it's hard um in some cases and definitely when you're working in areas um, you you grow like a connection to the place the people that work there or the people that live there and also the animals and so it can be really devastating when you see um things take a turn for mm -hmm. the worse uh how do we deal with it <laughs> I think one thing that helps is having other people that understand how you might mm -hmm. feel, um, being able to talk about it. So being able to talk about it with my colleagues um, and those individuals who have also already um, experienced similar things, um, because often it's something that's a bit hard to describe and just talking about it and getting it off your chest helps. Yeah. Um, and other things that we do um, is actually actively try to raise awareness. So um, doing like conservation projects, um, awareness campaigns. These are small things, but they help us to feel like we're at least um, bringing this to the attention of the individuals that maybe need to know. So whether it be the ministries or, or just um, um, local individuals that can help. Um, sometimes something like that small also is um, worth your while and can, can make you feel like at least that you're doing something um, about it. I'm really blessed that I have a, a great supportive family and um, really good friends and colleagues that um, have supported me throughout mm -hmm. my career. Yeah. Uh, and are there other areas of, um, you know, primatology that you, you know, through your work have, have become more interested in and, you know, where do you see your, your research directions in the future? Yeah, sure. Um, so more recently uh, during my postdoc, 
I became more and more interested in um, cultural variation in chimpanzees. Uh, and this is essentially meaning not the same as human cultures, but when we speak about chimpanzees um, and other animals, we really are just looking for behaviors that um, show group specific variation or population variation and behaviors that appear to be um, socially learned and transmitted within mm -hmm. a group. And so these are things like um, some people might be more familiar with um, like nut cracking, which only occurs in some small populations of chimpanzees and not across Africa or other things like um, termite fishing um, that people might be more familiar with that was really made famous when Jane Goodall discovered it. Um, yeah, and so for me, um, the behavior I mentioned earlier, the cumulative stone throwing, this is another behavior that um, is really interesting to me because it appears that it, it seems to be um, the first indication suggests that it is cultural and at the same time it's also for communication so this integrates my my interest in communication again um, but also with something that perhaps has um, uh, additional cultural variation. What does the stone throwing look like and and how did you what, what was going on through your head when you first witnessed it oh yeah it was it's really strange um <laughs> uh, actually so i the first team um i work for a, a pan-african project in the institute here and uh, the first team to discover it in the field sent back a photo of um, a tree that was seemed a bit battered so it had like some marks on it and there was stone accumulated inside the tree and around there was like one or two also at the base of the tree and um, at the time they asked the um, field assistants so these are you know usually just um, local people that also help us to go through the habitat and um, find uh, the animals and uh, they said oh um, that's the chimpanzees but we almost didn't really we couldn't believe it because we've never seen anything like that before so uh, we instructed the team of course um, please set, set, set up some camera traps see if you can capture any um, behavior and luckily they did uh, so they set up camera traps and um, soon after that they recorded the first chimpanzees actually coming to the tree picking up one of those rocks um, and the chimpanzees at the time when they pick up the rock, they also start to do this, um, the beginnings of a pantoot vocalization. So it's like this, they start to do that already while they're picking up the rock. Mm -hmm. And then after they've finished their pantoot, usually ends with a scream or at the same time as they're finishing it, they throw the rock at the tree. Okay. And sometimes, I mean, it was really weird. So sometimes we observe them throw it at the tree. Other times it would go into the hollow of a tree. Um, but in all cases, this was kind of the general pattern. And it was interesting because I had studied chimpanzees already in the Thai forest for a long time. And one of the behaviors I had um, studied at that time was also the pantoot. And I was very familiar with pantoots, but most chimpanzees, they end it with buttress drumming. So they, you know, um, pound with their hands and their feet multiple times um, on the roots or trunk of a tree. Right. And these chimpanzees, instead of doing the buttress drumming, were throwing this rock at the tree. So it seemed like a clear um, variation of a behavior that I knew already quite well. And buttress drumming is reported for all chimpanzee populations. Mm -hmm. So it's not something cultural at all. Um, but this stone throwing um, was not reported or known for any other populations. Wow. Yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah. 
Like, and we don't, we, we don't know. Well, I, I don't know if, whether there should be a, a reason why it could just be them having fun or like expressing, the, <laughs> yeah, expressing themselves. Right. So I, uh, that, that was the main reason why I went back in, um, in 2017, I went to two of the sites mm-hmm. and, uh, the one site, which was the one that was not highly degraded, um, is doing really, really well. And it was really interesting to, um, do some uh, field experiments there. So um, I actually will have a paper coming out in hopefully just a, another two, one week, one in two weeks, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and you'll learn a little bit more about why the chimpanzees do the stone throwing behavior. Okay, cool. Uh, what, what drove you to pursue science a long time ago? Like, did you know very early on that working with animals would be the discipline for you? Yeah, um, I can say I was always um, definitely an animal person and uh, I loved my dog, of course. And I often dog sit in, for example, in the neighborhood. That was one of my favorite things. I took care of kids as well, but I also offered dog sitting uh, when I was young. And I always thought maybe I wanted to be a veterinarian. Mm-hmm from a young age uh but as soon as i learned that veterinarians have to take care of sick animals uh, i quickly <laughs> removed that from my thought from one of my ideas because uh i didn't want to see animals in pain or um, suffering even if it meant that i could help them um so i i think i didn't have the stomach to be a veterinarian basically and um in science though in general um growing up in vancouver you're often surrounded by amazing um amazing natural scenery so and we're often hiking or camping or you know on a boat um you know i was lucky enough to grow up in a place where me and my friends or me and my family you are the only humans and encompassed by a beautiful landscape mm-hmm. and really feeling like um you're walking um, one-on-one with with nature and so um i think environmental sciences in general and conservation was something that I was interested in, in very, at a very young age. And that sort of followed me through even when I had the desire to, to do primatology, that I, I still keep that theme sort of within, within my work. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's really cool. Uh, and so we're nearing the end of the year now. Uh, what are your upcoming plans for 2020? Oh, yeah. Continuing, <laughs> finishing some more projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I have multiple projects um, still ongoing, especially with the, the Pan-African project, um, because many, me and my colleagues were working together a lot to, um, at the moment, put together different data sets and integrate them in order to try and understand more large-scale patterns of chimpanzee diversity. And at the the same time, I'm also working more closely with um, my bonobo research colleagues. Um, I started doing that a little bit this year, and um, we're hoping to do more comparative work. Um, So bringing not just chimpanzees, but also bonobos into the picture when we're looking at things like culture and communication variation, because um, bonobos are even harder to study than chimpanzees, and they occur in... um, less area so you can only find them in the democratic republic of congo mm-hmm. and there's fewer groups available um, when it comes to habituated populations mm-hmm. um, so um, as our data sets are growing in um, bonobo research uh, we can start to do more comparative work mm-hmm. 
Sounds amazing. Uh, where, where can people follow this work that you're doing going forward or, or where can they ask you questions about this interview? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I have a Twitter handle. It's my name. It's at Amy Kelly. So you can always follow me there. I always share my research on there. Um, we also have a Pan-African website. So Pan-Af website will have mm-hmm. all of our um, publications and also ongoing research that we're doing. Another place where you can actually speak to me more directly, even ask questions, um, is our uh, citizen science project that we have ongoing uh, with the Pan-African Project. And this is called Chimpanzee, so chimpanzee.org. And um, on this uh, website for the citizen science project, you can actually go online and watch our Pan-African videos from over 40. It's in total, at the moment, we've only done 14 or so sites. Um, but every so often, every few months, we add a new site. So new videos from different areas across Africa, um, where chimpanzees, sometimes also gorillas, um, live. And you also get to observe many other um, species as well. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I like to ask a, a lot of people who work in like wildlife conservation or primatology, uh, whether there are any organizations that you want to give a shout out to uh, so that if listeners want to, you know, maybe donate money or, or just find out more information they can go to. Yes, I can tell you which organization I can um, suggest. Um, one that I also work with quite often when I'm in West Africa, because um, these guys, it's the Wild Chimpanzee Foundation, and they are doing real on-the-ground conservation work in now Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, and Guinea. And this is really important because in West Africa, in Guinea in particular, this is where we have some of the largest populations of chimpanzees. And at the moment, we're working, um, the Wild Chimpanzee Foundation is working really hard to Mm -hmm. create um, a new national park with local stakeholders, um, including um, the people that live along um, the the gazetted area for this national park and hmm. um, with the support of the governments there. Um, and so if you feel inclined um, supporting the Wild Chimpanzee Foundation, they have a website, wildchimps.org, um, and you can go on there and also learn more about that. That's fantastic. And before we close the show soon, I usually ask the guests if they can come up with a hashtag for the episode. Can you think of something... Uh, that we've talked about, something funny, something meaningful. I was thinking like hashtag wild chimps. Okay, wild chimps. Well, I I think that's uh, really fitting. And um, uh, really, it's just to give listeners something to use so that they can indicate they've heard the whole way through. So it's kind of like a little hidden in every episode. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, Amy, this has been great. Do you think there's anything that we haven't covered already that you wanted to talk about? Uh, get off your chest. <laughs> no, I think um, so. I told you about chimpanzee. That's I really wanted to give a shout out to all the hardworking citizen scientists that we have still working for us um, on the um, chimpanzee platform, and that you listeners can also go there and interact more directly with our data as well as us. Um, and you no, know, I think that's about mm-hmm. it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will uh, definitely include links to that if you're interested, listeners, on arcanance.com. So you can check all of that out and check out more about Amy's work as well. If you want to support our show, uh, the Arcanance podcast, this public anthropology and archaeology project of mine, then you can also 
go to patreon.com slash Pod and consider the benefits of becoming a patron of the show. New episodes come out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the website itself at arcananth.com. Uh, we also post updates on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. Thanks, Michael. It was fun. Uh, and, you know, maybe when you have, you know, synthesized uh, all of the, you know, new information from your postdoc, you can come back on the show again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>